Let's jump into chapter 10 on effectual calling. And then we'll just open up the floor afterwards. We can talk about chapter nine, chapter 10. We can talk about anything else in the confession. We can talk about anything that you wanna talk about in our remaining amount of time. But go ahead then and turn to article chapter 10 on effectual calling. And we're gonna see a number of things here. We're gonna see really these four paragraphs under four main headings. We're going to see a summary of the call, the source of the call, and then we're going to see in paragraph three that sticky wicket, the status of elect infants. I want to spend a little bit of time there. And then in paragraph four, the status of the non-elect, both to those who have access to the gospel and of those who do not. Let's go ahead and jump in. Paragraph one. In God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those he is predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and he gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. And yet he does all of this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. Do you notice now how we're reading the confession left to right? how the previous chapter, chapter nine on free will, is laying some important theological foundations for chapter 10 in effectual calling. Do you see it there at the end of the paragraph? He does it all in such a way that they come completely freely, choosing to respond in faith to the gospel. Well, we're gonna see two things here in paragraph one. We're gonna see, first of all, the subjects of God's call, and we're gonna see the means of God's call. Regarding the subjects, notice, first of all, it is those whom he has called out, those whom he has predestined to life. That which God has done in eternity, he now does in the life of the believer in time, space, and history. So contrary to certain hyper-Calvinistic errors, it affirms that there are times when believers were truly under God's wrath. Hyper-Calvinists believe that we are justified prior to the creation of the world such that no repentance and faith is truly necessary. We're already justified eternally. But the confession denies this, that though we are predestinated by God according to his decree, he still acts in time, space, and history so that we are brought by his grace to repent and believe in the historical work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life and his death. And so the subjects of his effectual calling are those whom he has saved by his grace. Now, we need to stop here for just a minute because as I've noted in previous lectures that the Bible at least acknowledges three kinds of calling. There's one kind of calling that we might consider to be vocational. Paul says he was called by God to be an apostle. Not all of us are called into an apostolic ministry. 
Certain men were called to lay a foundation for the church along with the prophets and in line with the prophets that the church might be built up with Christ as the cornerstone. However, there is two other kinds of callings. There is an external general call and there is an effectual call. That general external call is that call that goes out to all men everywhere. And we're going to see that all the way down in the last paragraph. It's going to be evident. It is that external call of the gospel calling all men everywhere to repent in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet we know not only from scripture, from experience in our own families and our own evangelism, from those whom we've known and loved that have died in rebellion, that not all those who are called by the gospel respond to the gospel. That they freely choose, chapter nine, they freely choose to reject God's grace offered to them in the gospel. But there's also an effectual call that those whom God has predestinated, he has also called. And those whom he has called, he has justified. And those whom he has justified, he has glorified. Paul says in Romans eleven seven, 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Or even consider what we've been thinking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in preaching that Three times in the first handful of verses, Paul wants them to remember how they were called. Not merely that they had the gospel preached to them, but that God in his great mercy brought them into, 1 Corinthians 1.9, the fellowship of his son. He's gonna say later on in chapter one, therefore, brothers, consider your calling. You weren't wise, you weren't powerful, and yet God chose you. And he chose you in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.31. So there's a general call that goes out to all men everywhere, but there is an effectual call whereby God in his grace calls his elect to respond freely in repentance and faith to the gospel. And how does he do it? What are the means? So we see that God has appointed the ends. He has predestined those who uh, will come to faith in Christ. But what are the means that he uses to do that? Well, we see here that it is by his word and spirit. It works in three ways, according to paragraph one, that is the word and the spirit, works in three ways. And all three of these ways enjoy a logical relationship to one another. Notice, first of all, the spirit, using the word, enlightens our minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Isn't that an amazing truth? Look at Acts chapter 26. Book of Acts Luke's writing here, chapter 26, beginning in verse 16. Paul here is preaching and he says, giving his account of his own testimony, Christ has called him. He says in verse 15, who are you? The Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself. And then in verse 16, the Lord Jesus says, but rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Verse 18, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. And so here, he opens up their eyes enlightens their minds to understand the things of God. We're gonna see this later as we get to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter two, that who can understand the mind of God except for the spirit of God? It is the spirit of God that has revealed to us the gospel of God, such that apart from the spirit of God, we are just humanly, fleshly people who cannot respond appropriately. In other words, it is impossible for us with our minds to know who God is in his revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ and what his will for salvation is unless the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds spiritually and savingly to understand them. But notice also, secondly, he takes away our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. That's just Ezekiel 36. He takes our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. He puts a new spirit within us and causes his Holy Spirit to dwell in us that he does heart surgery. It's a heart transplant, so to speak. Stony hearts are dead hearts. They're unresponsive hearts. That's why they only freely respond in rebellion against God. That's why he indicts Israel in their unregeneracy for making his name shameful among the nations. But he says, here's what I'm gonna do. For all of those who are called according to my purpose among Israel, And for all those, ultimately, according to this new covenant in Christ, I'm gonna call all my people from every nation and I'm gonna give them new hearts. I'm gonna make them alive in such a way that they are regenerated, that they are vivified, given new life to respond freely to the gospel. But look at what he also does. Thirdly, he renews their wills and by his almighty power, he turns us to good and effectually draws us to Jesus Christ. The Spirit renews the will, and it makes us able to repent and believe. We might call this renewal. So we just saw in chapter 9 that it's God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That God is, the Father is the one who calls us and draws us by his Spirit to Jesus Christ. And it acknowledges here at the end of the paragraph that the word works with the spirit and the spirit works with the word to bring a man freely to Jesus in a state of grace. And so here we have just a summary of the call. That a general call has gone out to all men everywhere, but to all those who have been predestinated by God unto life, God calls effectually by his spirit to respond to his word enlightening their minds, giving them new hearts, and renewing their wills as he draws them to Christ by faith. But now in paragraph two, we're gonna see the source of the call. We see the fact of God's effectual calling in paragraph one, but now we're gonna see the source of that calling in paragraph two. It says this effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in those called, neither does the call arise from any power or action on their part. They are totally passive in it. 
They are dead in their trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And by this, they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than that which raised Christ from the dead. And so we see from the very outset of paragraph two that this effectual call is from, quote, God's free and special grace alone. It's not a common grace. It's not a general grace given to all men everywhere. It is a special grace bestowed upon God's elect, those whom he has predestinated from the foundations of the world. And paragraph two is important for a couple of reasons. A good confession is able to say not only what it affirms, but it's also able to distinguish itself from that which it denies. And this emphasis on God's effectual calling and his free and special grace ultimately distinguishes The doctrines confessed here from an Arminian semi-Pelagianism. That's what it means there by those who, excuse me, that, that it's not based rather on God's foreknowledge or in anything that God sees in man, nor is it based on the power or agency of man. God does not ultimately, his decree is not ultimately dependent in any way on creaturely freedom. That would make God himself dependent upon his creature. And if God is dependent in any way on his creature, his decree being in and of himself, then God ceases to be God. God cannot in any way be beholden to his creature, even in a special foreknowledge. All that he decrees, he accomplishes by his power, and in his power, he accomplishes all he intends among his elect by his appointed means through the Spirit and the Word. But consequently, it also can't be based on anything that we do in cooperation with God's grace. This is opposed to a Roman Catholic view of justification. That if you were to take, for instance, the seven Uh, sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, those things operating as kind of spigots of grace, bringing kinds of a sort of renewal of the inner man by his infusing grace, such that now by God's grace, we're able to cooperate with it in a way that gets us a little closer to justification at the end of the age, save for a few thousand years in purgatory. It's not a cooperating grace. It is a free and a special grace whereby all of the benefits and the blessings of salvation come to us in Christ when we are brought by his grace to repent and believe in the gospel such that we do not cooperate in it at all. Our calling is totally and utterly of God's grace. That's why it says at the very end that you and I can no more come to Christ than we can raise ourselves from the dead which is why the same power that was necessary to raise the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead raised us from the dead, brought us from being dead in sin to now being alive in Christ, that we have now been, he was raised for our justification, Romans 4, and we have been raised with him. It is a supernatural act of resurrection. That is the nature of conversion. But now we get into paragraph three and we press into some special issues. And specifically, paragraph three is going to address two classes of people. Elect infants and those who are incapable mentally, physically, or otherwise of being outwardly called. Consider what it says, paragraph three. 
elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. That's just John 3. The same is true of every elect person who is incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. All 17th century editions or confessions use elect. Spurgeon ended up dropping the word elect in his own revised version and moved to make all infants, without exception, beneficiaries in Christ. I'm going to argue that I think Spurgeon has moved beyond the scriptural testimony out of a desire to have pastoral, to give good pastoral care to his people and comfort to sufferers. But this is one of those things where we need to be really careful to to consider what scripture says, to not move beyond scripture and yet draw out necessary inferences from scripture. And at the end of the day, if anybody said, well, you know, I think I side with Spurgeon here, that wouldn't be anything in our church that we would divide over. Those are the kinds of conversations to have with our Bibles open, with good friends and good drinks, good food for our own edification as we aim to love one another well according to the gospel. And so this is not a militant article. This is an article of great pastoral care and comfort. You realize that when these confessions were written in the 17th century, 50% of the population died before the age of 20. The death of children was, it was a regularly recurring event. Most, if not all, the divines that wrote Westminster or Savoy or Second London had lost a child at some point. John Owen, who helped write the Savoy Declaration that was a Congregationalist version of Westminster on which the Second London was based, had 11 children. 10 of them died in infancy. It was the exception rather than the rule to find a family whose children all lived into adulthood. And so just consider for a minute that when we, that we live in an utterly unique time in human history. Through technological and medical advancements, you and I don't think about death very often. And when we do, it's not something that we consider to be normative. It's something that we consider to be abnormal. But for those who wrote the confession and for these pastors who pastored their flocks, it was something that was in front of them all the time. So how do they deal with it? It required to both a theological response and it required a pastoral response. Well, the Reformed faith has never denied the possibility of infant salvation, but it's here that we recall what was previously said in the confession. Go back to chapter five, verse three, because this is an important category to have. Chapter five, on God's providence, verse three, he says, in his ordinary providence, God makes use of means. We've seen the means here, haven't we, in effectual calling. What is the ordinary means whereby God calls his elect? Through his word and his spirit, isn't it? But here's the question. What about those who can't hear his word, who never hear his word in these ordinary ways, who perhaps because of physical disability, deafness, or other things are incapable of responding in a way that 
that many of us would ordinarily respond. Notice what it says. In his ordinary providence, God makes use of means, though he is free to work apart from them, beyond them, and contrary to them at his pleasure. Why? Because he's God. God is able to do things that surpass our understanding. He's able to do things that completely blow our rational capabilities out of our minds. And while he acts according to ordinary means, he is free according to his own decree and power to operate above, around them, or sometimes perhaps even contrary to them. Why is that important? Because here, it's talking about those who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. And so, how then are elect infants dying in infancy regenerated except by the Spirit? Notice the proof text. And down at the bottom, John 3, 5 to 6, John 8. Go ahead and go there because they're leaning really heavy on this particular passage. And then I want to consider a few more beyond the confession. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus as rabbi. We know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what's the issue? One cannot see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. One who is not born again cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not that some are conceived in innocency and therefore enter the kingdom of God and some are not. We are all brought forth in iniquity, conceived in sin. And so even those in the womb or who die in infancy must be born again. That's from the lips of Jesus. Well, Nicodemus says to him, well, how then can a man be born when he's old? He doesn't really get what's going on. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Being born of water is just merely speaking of physical birth, but being born of the spirit is speaking of a spiritual rebirth. It is the work of the spirit. That which is born, he says in verse six, of the flesh is flesh. Ah, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again because he's blowing Nicodemus's mind right now. Look at what he says. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Notice how heavily they're leaning on John 3 here, I think rightly. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, by whose power, unregenerate, dead in sin, infants are born again. And it says the Spirit works when and where and how he pleases. There is something utterly mysterious to it. So what they're trying to do is to reconcile a whole host of scriptural truths that God is good and just. All that God does is good. All of his ways are justice. So he cannot act in a way that would impugn his justice ever. So let's put that up on the bulletin board. 
We know also that those who are born again or those who enter the kingdom of God are born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So therefore, all of his elect must be born again. Well, what about those who are dead in infancy or cannot respond in normal ways to the gospel? According to the Spirit's sovereign work, he is able to bring those who are dead in sin, even in these states, into a state of regeneracy in a way that is consummate with the gospel over and around the common and ordinary means, God's free to do it, such that all those he's predestinated unto life are saved. But here's the question. How many then are predestinated unto life? We've already said that's a number that belongs in the mind of God alone. We can't know that. Could it be every infant? It could be. But that's beyond scriptural testimony and we can't say that. And so pastorally, when I think about counseling those who, who suffer miscarriage, especially late term or have a child born and then die in infancy, my own sister-in-law had a stillbirth. I have to aim to comfort to the best of my ability with the Spirit's help by what God has revealed in Scripture, but not move beyond it. Lest I presume to speak for God in ways that God himself has not spoken. And yet I want you to consider a handful of remarkable things. Go to 2 Samuel verse 12. Chapter 12, rather. 2 Samuel chapter 12. David has committed a sin against both Uriah and Bathsheba. Nathan rebukes him. And the consequence of his sin is that his son born to Bathsheba will die in infancy. What does it say? Verse 23, David says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And here David says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, it could be that he's talking just about going to him in the grave, just as my baby has died, so I will one day die. But there's been a lot of theologians that have made a lot of hay from a single verse that may go a little bit beyond the verse. But nevertheless, it's at least plausible to think that David is speaking specifically about going to him, especially in light of, of being forgiven. But we can't draw a whole lot of theology out of a single verse from 2 Samuel 12. And so consider also Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Verse 16. We'll go all the way back up to 13. For you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. It is the knowledge of a God who has, or it's the confession of a God who has intimate knowledge of an individual. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. And when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, but your eyes saw my unformed substance. You see what we can't see. And in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none. 
There is a kind of knowledge that the scriptures confess that God has about even us prior to infancy, in utero, prior to birth, that we cannot have. It is an incomprehensibility to his knowledge, an infinite knowledge, and that's comforting to the psalmist. But consider even this, Luke chapter 1, verse 41. None of these passages by themselves make the point. We want to try to interpret the Bible with the Bible, drawing out necessary inferences, and yet even in those things which are mysterious, receiving them by faith as we aim to hope in God. But look at what happens in Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and he went and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, look at this, the baby leaped in her womb. Is God able by the power of the Holy Spirit to do a work in the womb for his own redemptive purposes? You bet he is. Now, is this the, the end all text to elect infants dying in infancy? No, it's not. But what it's meant to do is give us a portrait of a handful of texts whereby we can now wrestle and aim for comfort with a God who knows us, with a God who by the power of, his own, of the Holy Spirit caused an infant in John to respond and to leap to the revelation of another baby in the womb of Mary, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously to fulfill his own earthly mission to which he had been called, but nevertheless remarkable. And we tease all these things out and we arrive at a comfortable truth. God knows things that we don't know. He's able to do things that we can't do. He's able to go places that we can't go. And he's able to accomplish things that are over, above, and beyond his ordinary means in a way that are unfathomable to us. And so if that's all true, then it must be the case without knowing a number that if God has many of his elect among those infants who die in infancy or of those who due to physical hindrances are unable to respond like normal to being outwardly called, that his spirit is able to do whatever he wills such that according to his decree, all of his elect will get home safely. I will see my baby again, David says. And so if I were pastoring someone, what would I say? I wouldn't want to presume too much on any one of these passages. I'd want to do them, I want to consider them all in such a way and, and even to help this paragraph bring me and help me to think through and interpret scripture, but to do so in a way that helps each one of us understand when we enter into days of bitter providence, even the bitterest providence, that God is good, that you can trust him. And that at the end of the age, when all that he's done is made clear for us, though we now see in a mirror dimly, we will see how he in every way has magnified the glory of his grace and his power in ways that are unfathomable. But notice it's all by the power of the Spirit. If he can take those who were, those of us who are dead in sin and make us alive in Christ, can the Spirit of God not regenerate an infant in the womb? You bet he can. 
if the very power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead brings us to life, can, that Holy, can his Holy Spirit not do whatever he pleases and save over and beyond his ordinary means of grace? You bet he can. This was a great comfort. And so I hope you see that what seems strange to us is a 17th century group of saints that are clinging to the word so that they might be able to hope in the goodness and the grace of God in the face of incalculable suffering. 10 out of 11 children not making it out of childhood. How do you make sense of that? This was their attempt to do it according to the scriptures. And it's interesting, isn't it, that they put it under effectual calling. Well, let's conclude our time. Paragraph four. Those who are not elected will not and cannot truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved because they are not effectually drawn by the Father. They may even be called by the ministry of the word and may receive some ordinary working of the spirit without being saved. That is, they are in a church that they are able to receive with their own ears and eyes the the glory of God and his people and of the preaching of the word and yet still not be saved. Think Hebrews chapter six. Much less can any be saved who do not receive the Christian religion. No matter how diligently they live their lives according to the light of nature, that is through logic and through law written on our hearts or the teachings of the religions they profess. It is denying a kind of universalism. We saw all the way back in chapter one, why are the scriptures necessary? The scriptures are necessary because they reveal to us who God is and what his will is for salvation in Jesus Christ. They're necessary because no man can know that from what God has created, though they may know God in such a way that, that God is justified in condemning them. Romans 1, they suppress the knowledge of God. Though through his creation, his invisible attributes, his power are visibly seen and beheld, nevertheless, we suppress the knowledge of God. The, the heavens declare the glory of God, but you know what the heavens don't declare? How a sinner who is dead in trespasses can find salvation freely offered in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and that by faith they might declare with their lips Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Nor is there any kind of inner light that can reveal that to us as some of our more perhaps charismatic or new apostolic reformation friends would argue that there is a light that God gives apart from his special revelation in Christ that can lead a man to salvation. The, the, the confession rightly rejects all matters of universalism in this regard and recognizes that all of his elect, except for those special instances pointed out in paragraph three, are those who have been called by the gospel. And so you see then how the effectual call, this point in paragraph four, motivates us in our mission. We're gonna need to keep this paragraph in mind when we get later on to chapter 20 on the extent of the gospel and the grace thereof because it's gonna argue that this general call of the gospel that we've just considered and all of its benefits and its blessings in the previous chapters, we're gonna proclaim this to every nation all over the place. 
calling men to repent and believe in Christ so that all of God's elect will come in. Now, paragraph four isn't a discouragement to evangelism. It's a motivation to evangelism. That God is calling all those who are his by his word and spirit, and we get to participate in that. So here we have God's effectual call. His great grace, free and special grace alone to those whom he has called in Christ. Christ. 